What is up? Sorry for the long intro there. Was getting everything, uh, putting the final touches on a few things. So a lot of stuff to get to today. We have the Iranian nuclear scientist who was killed either by Israel or the U.S. or both. We're going to talk quite a bit about that, tell you what's going on with that. Um, 
Trump flipped out on a reporter a few days ago, and he's very sensitive since officially losing the race. Um, Fox News pretended to be outraged by some pretty mild Obama comments, so we hopped in a time machine and went back to, like, 2010. And then, um, yes, Joe Biden is officially making cabinet picks, and to say that they're shitty is a gigantic understatement. (laughs) They're really, really bad. Uh, we will be talking about, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it here, but we will be talking about Neera Tandon. Oh, Neera Tandon. Fucking Neera Tandon was picked. Oh, that hurts so much. Um, and then of course, Republicans are really, um, pretending to embrace their old identity of deficit hawkery. They're going to lean into that in the Biden era for the most cynical of reasons, um, and we'll we'll get to that. We'll discuss we'll discuss that. Um, and then Fox News makes some terrible arguments against free college. Fox News makes some really really bad arguments against free college, and so we'll talk about that as well. Oh, and later on in the show, we will talk about Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson we'll talk about later on. There's a new controversy involving him. He's been, uh, he was been dealing with some personal struggles, and so he wasn't exactly um, in the public eye for the past year or two. But there's a new story involving him that we will dive into. Lots to say about that. So without further ado, let's get started. I believe I have a video for the first story involving the Iranian nuclear scientist. Yep, let's do it. An Iranian nuclear scientist was assassinated either by Israel or the U.S. or potentially both. There was potentially some coordination between the two. So here's CNN covering that. Iran is promising swift retaliation after a key scientist in its nuclear program was killed in an alleged assassination plot. Iran's defense ministry confirming he died Friday when his car was attacked outside Tehran. Top Iranian officials are pointing the finger at Israel. The U.S. says it is closely monitoring the developments. And the aircraft carrier, the Nimitz, is being sent to the Persian Gulf, though the Pentagon says it's unrelated to escalating tensions with Iran. CNN's senior national security correspondent, Alex Marquardt, joining me now. Hi there, Alex. Um, have we heard anything from Israel about this assassination? Hi there, Amra. No, we haven't, and I don't expect we will. This is not the kind of thing that they generally comment on. They have not denied responsibility. They have not claimed responsibility. Essentially, this is a win-win for them because everyone thinks that they were behind this attack, this assassination of Mohsen Fakhri Zadeh, and and he is now dead. Um, We have not heard anything from the U.S. government either, not from the White House or the Defense Department. Um, You did note that that U.S. official said that they are watching the situation closely, but what we are hearing from Tehran um, is that there will be revenge for Fakhri Zadeh's killing um, and that it will come at the right time, according to the President uh, Hassan Rouhani. So they're promising retaliation because, of course, they were going to promise retaliation. They have to retaliate. They're not in a position where they can't retaliate. And not only was this going to happen in this instance, this is exactly what happened when the United States assassinated General Soleimani. We killed General Soleimani, and then there were immediate retaliatory strikes um, in Iraq, 
Shia militias in Iraq uh, attacked either our troops or troops that we're aligned with. And so, of course, this is going to happen. That's the way it works. You think they could just take an assassination of one of their commanders lying down? Or you think that we could kill one of their top nuclear scientists and they would just overlook it as if it's like a whoopsie? Of course not. It was intentional. It was intentionally done. And so there's going to be a backlash. That's the way that these things work. Now, the thing that I first go to every time I hear a story like this is the Chomsky rule. And I've said it before on this program, I think that Noam Chomsky is like the only person who actually believes in international law, cares about international law, and applies international law. And so his rule is just, you know, flip the people in the story here. So what would happen if it was Iran that assassinated a top Israeli nuclear scientist? Or it was Iran that assassinated a top American nuclear scientist? Could you imagine the reaction from our government or the Israeli government or even imagine the reaction of the media in the United States of America? I mean, it would clearly be viewed accurately as a a brazen act of war, as an aggressive act, as a violation of international law. And my guess is we would immediately go to war. There wouldn't be any, you know, build-up or or tit-for-tat response where it's like, okay, they killed one of our scientists, so now we'll kill one of their scientists. No, it would have been like, all right, let's go. It's 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 time to time to suit up. We got to go fight a war. But notice when you flip the people in the story, when you flip the sides in the story, look at the way that it's discussed. Because there's a lot of there's a lot admitted by the way in which they cover the story. So, first of all, the brazen lies. So they say in this CNN piece, oh, a U.S. aircraft carrier is being sent to the Persian Gulf, but don't worry, it has nothing to do with this. How stupid do they think we are? How stupid do you have to be to actually swallow that propaganda whole? And that says a lot about CNN. That says a lot about CNN. That says that... Whatever their CIA sources and Pentagon sources, intelligence agency sources, whatever they tell them, they're like, oh, right on. We're just going to act like that's gospel and that's truth, and we're going to run it uncritically. Imagine saying that uncritically. They didn't even add, like, the U.S. government says that it has nothing to do with it. They just say as if it's a fact, like, this has nothing to do with it. And then... Uh, you have CNN saying this situation was, quote, a win-win for Israel. It's a win-win for Israel. Would they talk about this in strategic terms? Again, if you flip the roles, would they do that? If Iran assassinated a U.S. nuclear scientist or an Israeli nuclear scientist, would they be like, listen, let's call balls and strikes here. Let's keep it real. This is a win-win for Iran because they killed the scientist and now they're not – Uh, you know, accepting responsibility for it, but everybody thinks they did it anyway. So it's a win-win. It's a win from a strategic perspective and a marketing perspective, and it's a win because they actually killed a top nuclear scientist. Is that how it would be discussed if Iran did it? Of course not. So this segment is just oozing and dripping with bias in the most disgusting over-the-top ways. 
that we don't even, that people don't even take a moment to, to digest and parse and, and recognize. So here we are. Listen, one of the main reasons why this is happening, and I, I'm, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money on this point. Unfortunately, we can't prove it, so there's no point in actually betting on it, but I would be willing to bet a lot of money on this. Donald Trump wants to leave Joe Biden with a gigantic mess. And so in order to leave him with a mess, he's going to green light anything and everything that he, can, that he can get away with when it comes to Iran. Because Donald Trump fears that Joe Biden will get back in power, and one of the first things he'll do is try to get us back in the Iran nuclear agreement, the 2015 nuclear agreement that him and Obama negotiated. And so Trump wants to make sure that doesn't happen. So what's he doing? Anything and everything to screw up our relationship with Iran even more before the next administration comes in. And that's why they said, you know, we covered the story on this show, and I think there's probably merit to it. You had Trump asking his top advisors after he lost, um, how quickly can we attack Iran's top nuclear site? And then we're in such a bad position that even the uber neocon hawks like Mike Pompeo and Mike Pence were like, hey, dog, listen, we can't really risk that right now. Like, if you wanted to do that like a year ago, that's sort of what's up and we'd be with you. We're down for attacking whatever in Iran, of course. We hate them. We want to do regime change. That's what we're all about. But you, you want to do it now? I mean, it's a little too late because what happens is you create a giant international crisis. You could spark World War III. And then immediately as that's happening, we're in a weak position because the administrations are changing. The transition is occurring. So, I mean, that's catching us with our pants down in no uncertain terms. So even the uber neocon hawks were like, going to have to X and A on the plants gay because that shit ain't going to work, man. We can't do that. So Trump was looking to attack Iran, looking to immediately start war with Iran. And instead, what happened is, this, my guess is, this is what they floated as like a plan B. Either the United States or Israel, or both working together, were like, well, we have intelligence on their top nuclear scientists, so why not kill them? Now, the other thing I have to point out, and you're not going to get this at all in mainstream media, and it's pathetic because they need to do their job and they need to do it right, um, is that there's no evidence Iran even has a nuclear weapons program. There's no evidence Iran even has a nuclear weapons program. Now, I know you hear that and you're like, Jesus, like what? What are you talking about? The underlying assumption in every single thing you've ever heard in discussions about Iran is that they do have a nuclear weapons program. There is no evidence they have a nuclear weapons program. In fact, all the evidence is to the contrary. All the evidence is that um, to the extent they have nuclear power, the uranium is only enriched to the point where you can have power for your power grid and you could do research. And the point of enrichment to actually get a nuclear bomb is way above and beyond what they have the capacity of doing and what they're currently doing. So there really is no Iranian nuclear weapons program. There's all, all this talk about like, oh, well, the breakaway time for them to create a single weak nuclear weapon is like a year or whatever. They, they change how long that would take depending, you know, depending on the day. Um, but they don't actually have a nuclear weapons program. And beyond that, remember, they followed to a T the nuclear agreement from 2015. Every single time the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, went in there to do their job to regulate and to make sure that they're only enriching to a certain point, every single time they passed with flying colors. Every single time. So they followed the agreement perfectly. We ripped up the agreement. By the way, I love this next part. What we do is, We pull out of the agreement, we chastise them, then they say, 
by the way, the actions don't prove that they actually did this, but they say, well, I guess maybe we should start creating weapons. And then we start berating them for moving in that direction. We can't rip up the agreement and then force them to continue to abide by the terms of the agreement that we pulled out of. That makes less than no sense. That's beyond schoolyard bully stuff. That's like schoolyard bully with a 52 IQ. Like it's, that's just stupid and belligerent and makes absolutely no sense. But see, that's the thing is the rest of the international community looks at us and they're like, oh, my God, you guys are pathetic. In fact, the European Union released a condemnation of what we did here. You want to know why? Because it's a brazen violation of international law. And you have to think about these things in, in a universal way. So in other words, the precedent that was now set is we can uh, assassinate scientists. We can assassinate scientists. Now, you might be somewhat comfortable with that since we're the world's sole superpower, right? How are you going to feel about that when China is the world's sole superpower? Or Russia is the world's sole superpower? Or some nation that's not us is the world's sole superpower? Are you comfortable with other governments that will become imperialist leaders? Are you comfortable with them willy-nilly assassinating nuclear scientists? Is that something that, you know, you would watch and say, that makes sense? No. When anybody else does it, we realize, oh, my God, this is insane. But this is what we do. Like, the United States acts under the assumption that international law applies to everybody else but us. And we get to do whatever we want, and we're the policemen of the world, and you can take it. And it's just, it's beyond grotesque. Because if you're not thinking about these things in a universal way, then what you don't understand is you're green lighting everybody else can do these things too. It's like when we did the war in Iraq. What precedent was set there? The precedent was you can do illegal and offensive wars against countries that don't attack you, even though that is a clear violation of international law. But since we did it, now other places can do it, and they can say, I don't know what you're talking about. See, the U.S. did it. Everybody's doing it. I, I don't know. So, of course, we're going to allow this to happen. And it's a total disintegration of law and order. You know, ironically enough, on the international stage, one of the things that's desperately lacking is law and order. So you should be in favor of law and order when it comes to, international, when it comes to the international stage. But the Democrats and the Republicans, they don't believe in law and order at all, not even a little bit. And it's kind of ironic and funny that, like, the Republican Party, especially Trump, he claims that mantle of law and order and screams it relentlessly. There's a thousand tweets of him just saying law and order in all caps with an exclamation point. But really, he doesn't mean it. He means it in the most narrow possible sense. He means it in the sense of like, hey, if there are cops doing police brutality and beating innocent people, just sit there and take it. So he actually means it when the cops are violating law and order, he says law and order to imply shut up and take it. <laughs> but when it comes to law and order is in like, hey, let's not violate international law. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. The other interesting thing is, and we talked about this quite a bit, not discussed almost at all in mainstream media, the United States pulled out of the International Criminal Court because the International Criminal Court said, you're sanctioning life-saving medicine going into Iran, and you can't do that. You have to stop. We're not allowing you to do that. And we said, watch us. We're going to do exactly that. We're going to continue to sanction medicine going into their country. We don't care how many civilians die. And we're not going to listen to you. We're going to pull out of the court. And, oh, you don't like it? Why don't you stop us with your army? Oh, that's right. You don't have an army. We have the most powerful one ever. This is how we act. These are our true colors. So, 
If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. You should be outraged because these are incredibly destabilizing events. They're wrong on their merits. It's murderous on, it, on, on its merits. Not okay on its merits, but beyond that, even if you're inclined to not care about that angle of it, which you should, it's a deeply destabilizing event because now there are going to be retaliation attacks because there have to be, just like there was with Soleimani, just like there will be now. So, oh, man. I mean, I don't have any high hopes at all for Biden. In fact, everything he's shown me so far is that he's going to be worse than, than what we all expected. He's going to be really, really bad. But for the love of God, January 20th can't come fast enough because they're actively trying to fuck shit up on the way out the door. And it's not even subtle. All right. Let's go to Trump flipping out on a reporter. I actually really enjoyed this. President Trump absolutely flipped out on a reporter a few days ago, and he continued to push his fraudulent, rigged election theory. Take a look.
a pole watcher is it's considered sacred in our country. When they throw them out of rooms, sure it is. And when they put them in pens, excuse me, no, they didn't. My attorneys did not admit anything. I mean, it's really amazing to watch this. So, yes, his claim on the poll watchers is nonsense. It's not true. First of all, when they count the votes everywhere in the country, there's Democrats and Republicans present. That's the first point. So you already have, like, the, the way the system was set up up front, there actually are poll watchers embedded in the process as it is. That's the first point. Okay, so there are already Republicans all over the place. But the second point is, yeah, the poll watchers were all allowed to watch. There were just other rules that they had to abide. So in some instances, they were too close, for example. They would get way too close and it would be intimidating for the people counting. So they had to back up a little bit. The other instance is a lot of these um, you know, people who are embracing the conspiracy theory wholeheartedly, they talk about how, oh, well, there was one place where they tried to cover up the windows where they were counting the votes. But in that instance, they don't tell you the next part, which was the reason they were doing that is because all of the voters' information were available in that case. So you had like addresses and phone numbers and things of that nature, and they wanted to protect people's privacy. So they did that. So he's just he's embracing a narrative that's not true, but it makes him feel better emotionally, so he's all in with it. But when the questioner is like, dude, the thing you're saying about the poll watchers didn't happen, he just lies and railroads her and acts like, no, it, it did happen. And then the other thing is, she's like, your people admitted in court that, that, like, that what you're saying isn't true. He's like, they didn't admit anything in court. Yes, they did. In fact, in some of these states where they were claiming fraud, the lawsuits didn't even accuse fraud. You want to know why? Because when you're in a court of law and you actually have to prove it, you can't just make wild accusations and assertions with no evidence. And so even though they're publicly saying fraud, 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 and going on right-wing outlets and saying fraud, 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 they couldn't even bring a case that tried to establish that there was fraud because there's no evidence of fraud. And then the other thing is just the sheer number of failures. So they lost, I think, all of their cases or almost all of their cases. So there's been over 30 failures, over 30 failures. If you were going to make the case, this is where you had to make it, and you didn't make it. It's kind of embarrassing. In the year 2000, when George W. Bush and the Republicans took that election, the vote came down to one state, Florida, and the, the difference was a little over 500 votes. And so the legal team found a way of like counting only the votes where you got rid of like the hanging chads or the dimpled chads or something like that. I know that sounds dirty, but it's not if you read about that, the history of the hanging chads thing. Um, and they found a way to get the election for George W. Bush, but they had the best legal minds in the country working on it around the clock, and they had a coherent case. Whereas now, Trump's got Rudy Giuliani with hair dye dripping down, dripping off his sideburn on his face. He's got one nut popping out of his zipper. That's probably the next thing that's going to happen as he's talking. And he got Sidney Powell, who's certifi certifiably insane, just a, you know, a complete and utter lunatic, who's making the most ridiculous claims you can imagine, honestly believes that, like, Venezuela or Cuba have rigged the Dominion voting machines and parts of it were made in Venezuela or Cuba, as if Venezuela or Cuba want Joe Biden to become president and are willing to do something like that. I mean, it's beyond ridiculous, right? But, like, this is where we are now. But here's the interesting takeaway, in my opinion. I think Trump has actually convinced himself 
that he won at this point. Like at the beginning, and I pulled this, I asked you guys early on, what do you think Trump really believes on this? And the overwhelming majority of you were like, he knows he's lying. He knows he's lying. But then a story came out the other day where apparently Trump, on the night of the election, Trump was walking around the White House muttering under his breath, I won, I won, I won, I won. Because, you know, at the time when the votes came in, what did they do? They counted all, uh, in, in most states, they counted the votes from election day first. And those votes went overwhelmingly for Trump because he was telling Republicans vote on election day. And the mail-in votes were overwhelmingly Biden. So when just the votes on the day were being counted, it looked like he was winning everywhere. It looked like he was winning Wisconsin and Michigan. He didn't win there. But he was muttering, walking around the White House muttering, I won, I won, I won, I won, I won. And so I used to think, well, he's clearly lying about, you know, what happened in this election. No, now I think he actually has convinced himself that he's correct. It is fraudulent. It is rigged. And that he did win. And that, um, you know, he thinks he's correct. Now, the only other case I would maybe accept is this idea that he's, he's a pathological liar. And in that instance, it almost, it almost doesn't matter in his own mind whether or not he's telling the truth or lying. It's almost like it doesn't even fall into those two categories in his own mind. Like when you talk or when I talk, we, we're thinking as we're going, like, am I saying things that are true? Like, can, is everything I'm saying falling in the true category? Like, that's how a normal person functions. A pathological liar just says shit, and whatever comes out of their mouth, in their mind, it, it doesn't even fall into the category of true or false. It just is. And so I would accept that possible description that he's not thinking about true or false. Am I right or wrong? It's just like, it just is. I'm speaking into existence stuff. And so that's possible, but I really do think that he believes he won because he's been so persistent and he's been so relentless. And with that story of him muttering, I won on election night, and the little tidbits of information he gets here or there that he then uses to construct in his mind a narrative as to how it went down and how it was stolen from him, I think that he really believes that he won, which is hilarious because he keeps getting destroyed in court because there's no evidence because he didn't actually win. He didn't actually win. Um, and there's an explanation for every single thing he's talking about here. Like, oh, he beat Obama in places with black voters. Okay, well, I don't know where he's getting that from, and I would never take something directly out of Trump's mouth at face value, um, but these guys underestimate, like, a lot of the country really fucking hates this guy, man. So there was a big, there were a lot of people who were driven to the polls out of sheer, like, holy shit, Donald Trump's a mess and he's the president. And they don't have to like Biden to vote like that. See, this is what he's discounting. Like, he talks about the enthusiasm for his people. Yeah, there are people, re there are plenty of people who really love him. But, like, there are plenty of people who hate you, and that was their sole motivation for getting to the polls to vote for you. And then beyond that, you told your people not to vote by mail. You kept saying it was fraudulent. You kept saying that, you know, that that's the, not the right way to vote. And you kept telling people show up on Election Day. So then they did that. And then are there going to be some people who maybe would have voted for Trump who were scared to go to the polls because of COVID, but you just said don't vote for them by mail, so they just didn't vote? Yeah, it's possible. It's possible that that happened. It's possible he shot himself in the foot by making a case over and over and over not to vote by mail. So yeah, so it wasn't surprising at all when the mail-ins come in and they're 80% Biden. Of course they were going to be 80% Biden. Mail-ins already lean Democratic. Then when you add in the fact that you're consistently saying, hey, don't vote by mail-in, yeah, of course that was going to happen. Of course that was going to happen. And when he says, 
a lot's going to happen between now and then. He's asked if he's going to go to the inauguration. He's asked if he's going to leave the White House. By the way, he says, quote, certainly I will, and you know that. So, yeah, he may go kicking and screaming, and he may go not acknowledging that he lost, but he'll go, right? But then when he says a lot's going to happen between now and the election, that's just the part where it's just delusional. Like, you're losing all these court cases. The votes are getting certified. The results are getting certified. What do you think's going to happen? What do you think's going to happen? You're not going to get, like, a clownish coup going because I got news for you. The military and a lot of the intelligence agencies aren't so hot on Donald Trump. So, like, what do you think's going to happen? Oh, a lot's going to happen between now and then. You think you're going to overturn the election results between now and then? It's ridiculous. It's beyond ridiculous. You're going to swing three states that, where the vote margin is over, like, 10,000 votes? Are you out of your fucking mind? It's not going to happen. So, I mean, it, it's just so weird to watch in real time an American president be this ridiculous. I mean, I'm used to seeing them be ridiculous, and I'm used to seeing them be war criminals. But this is another level. This is another level. It's just nonstop nonsense. It's just a tsunami of bullshit emanating through his mouth. But listen, I think I do now believe that he actually has convinced himself that he, he won. But the real interesting question is, so yeah, he's going to be out of, uh, out of the office on January 20th. It's going to happen. But then I think the real question is, will he go to the inauguration? And all you guys seem really convinced that he's not going to go. I lean in the direction that he's not going to go as well. However, I will say this. I think somebody can make the case to him that actually it's a massive cuck beta move if you don't go, because every other president has gone to the inauguration of the next president. He might be like, okay, I guess got to go. Because it would look more beta if he doesn't. But having said that, there's a story we're going to get to later about a possibility that he floated, which is just so Trumpian, and it has to do with the inauguration. So again, we'll get to that. I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it now. But uh, the next question is, so he's going, to, he's going to be out of the office, but the next question is, will he go to the inauguration, yes or no? I think it was like 80 or 90% of you said um, that he's not going to go. I think he's not going to go too, but I'm only like 60-40 or 65-35. Yeah, let's go 65%. 65% I think he won't go, but that's a healthy percentage that he might actually go. So who knows, but he got snippy, didn't he? Jesus Christ, he really lashed out. Don't you dare ever talk to the President of the United States like that. Don't you ever do that. I'm the President of the United States. That's some elitist bullshit, by the way. That's some elitist bullshit. A journalist can't ask you a tough question and can't be aggressive because you're the president of the United States. What happened? I thought you were all about the, the average Joe and Jane. No, you pulled the elitist card the second that, you know, you felt challenged. Don't you dare talk to me like that. I'm the president of the United States. Shut the fuck up. Shut up. You're saying dumb things, and so they're going to try to hold you accountable. At least this is a rare instance where the media is actually trying to hold you accountable. It's actually nice to see every now and then the media like be like, no, no, what you're saying is actually not true. Stop. So he's, he, he's all up in his feelings, man. Ever since he lost, he is really, really all up in his feelings, and that's clear to see. All right, now we're going to go to Fox News pretending to be outraged.
Fox News pretended to be outraged over some Obama comments about the Latino vote. Take a look. Trump winning over many Latino evangelicals from the states of Florida and Texas, but today President Obama claimed that these key voters put aside Trump's, quote, racist rhetoric because he supports their religious views. Watch. There's a lot of evangelical Hispanics who, you know, the fact that Trump says racist things about Mexicans or puts uh, detainees, uh, you know, uh, uh, undocumented workers in cages, they think that's less important than the fact that, you know, he uh, supports their views on, you know, gay marriage or abortion. Joining me now, Raymond Arroyo, EWTN News Managing Editor and a Fox News contributor. He's also the author of The Spider Who Saved Christmas, which i got to get, indeed. Uh, Raymond, thank you so much for being here. You know, as soon as I heard that sound this morning, I thought, oh, my gosh. In some ways, I think maybe in his mind a lot of things hadn't changed, but you spent time on the ground talking to Catholic voters and Hispanic voters, and that's, that's, mm-hmm. not, what, that's not what you heard. Look, Dana, this clearly shows the Democrats and Barack Obama are worried about this constituency. President Trump lost the Hispanic vote by 20 points to Hillary Clinton. With Biden, he only lost by 12. And in many of the, in the, in the 100 or so Hispanic majority counties, he won those. He was, he's increased his margins. So they're worried. But to dismiss them on their religious beliefs, Dana... He didn't do that. He didn't dismiss them on their religious beliefs. He's explaining why he thinks that there were, there were more Latinos that voted for Trump in 2020 than there were in 2016, and why, relatively speaking, he did well among Republicans. By the way, there's, there's a little bit of misinformation out there about this issue, and I was, honestly, Trump is part of the problem in spreading it, of course. Um, George W. Bush actually did better with Latinos than Trump did, and George W. Bush did better in both elections. I think in one election, it was only like 1% better. Um, But in 2004, Bush got a lot more of the Latino vote than even Trump got this time. So it's not exactly true that he did the best of any Republican. But yes, he did the best with any Republican in a long time, did better than McCain, did better than Romney. Um, But Obama's not saying this as a put down. He's saying this as, as a let's try to explain why there were more Latinos who voted for Trump this time around versus 2016. Now, in terms of, I like how they admit that too, by the way. There's one part where they go on to be like, well, one of the reasons is abortion. Yeah, that's what Obama's saying. (laughs) I don't know if you saw that part in that clip there. I don't remember. But in the whole clip, that same guy who's pretending to be outraged admits like, well, yeah, one of the reasons is is social issues, that Latinos um, in the aggregate are more socially conservative, and so that gives them more of a natural home in the Republican Party, um, and that's what Obama pointed out, and you're outraged about it. So I don't think this isn't, he's not like being disrespectful. However, I will say, I do think that the theory is not exactly correct. For some, is that the case? Yes. But that's not the only reason, because if that was true, then John McCain and Mitt Romney would have also, you know, gotten more of the Latino vote. So it's Obama, as usual, is giving a theory that's like half true, but it also serves his own interests and serves the interests of the Democratic elite, where they don't have to look in the mirror and they don't have to adjust. It's just a matter of like, you know, 
they did what they were going to do because of this thing outside of our control. Um, but really, my theory on why Trump got more of the Latino vote, and I read a great article about this. I forget what it was, where it was. I forget which outlet it was in. But you had like sociologists actually go and talk to these Latinos um, in Texas, and that's where a lot of the vote broke more for Trump there. And um, it was really interesting because they're, you know, you'll be surprised to learn this, but it turns out individuals are individuals. And it really doesn't make too much sense to view people in that group sense. Um, And so when you talk to them, they gave all different reasons depending on who it was. So, yes, for some of them, is it um, the Republicans are against abortion and I'm against abortion? Yes. For some of it, is the Republicans are for traditional marriage, also known as against gay marriage, and I am too? Yes. That's some of it. But there's also some of it that's, you know, it's rooted in issues that are specific to that individual. Um, some of it is rooted to this idea of entrepreneurship and small business ownership. Now, I would argue the Democrats don't do things that disincentivize small business ownership, but do the Republicans embrace the rhetoric more of, like, entrepreneurship? Yes, they embrace the rhetoric more, and some people hear that, and they gravitate towards that. There's also this issue of, and this happened throughout history too, man. Like, there was a time when Irish Americans and Italian Americans were not viewed as fully American, and certainly were not viewed as white. It was like they weren't fully assimilated into WASP culture, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture. And so what happens is, in a situation like that, sometimes the community makes a decision to assimilate on purpose and sort of take the jobs that would be viewed as more American. So you saw, for example, there are a lot of Irish cops in places around the country, in the Northeast in particular, there's plenty of places with Irish cops. And that was one of the jobs that they took, these civil service jobs, which then in turn made them viewed as like more American over time. And oftentimes you kind of get together with, align with the dominant culture of the society in order to feel more like part of the culture. And so now I think a very similar thing is happening uh, with Latino Americans where, and now you even see it, like, there's, there's distinctions that are made where there's, like, non-white Hispanic and white Hispanic. It's like, what does, that, I, what does that mean? What counts as white Hispanic and non-white Hispanic? And then, again, so this gets back to the cultural point where, like, there's plenty of Latinos who are, are looking to be part of, of the dominant, honestly, white culture. And so their politics are now more reflecting that in the same way that, the, the dominant white culture is very Republican and conservative. They want to be a part of that, and so their voting patterns are more in alignment with that. As I said, the entrepreneurship thing is big. But it's complicated. With a lot of people, it's very specific issues to them personally, them individually. There are a lot of Latinos who really, really don't like the nonstop identity politics that the Democrats play. And, and there's a, you know, a universalist approach that is much more appealing to them. Um, and by the way, that's one of the reasons why Bernie Sanders did so well. Bernie Sanders doesn't do the hollow identity politics that much. He does more of the universal social programs approach. So he did phenomenally well with Latinos, namely in Nevada. Um, so it, it's complicated, man. It's complicated. And by the way, the other thing is it's kind of overstated also. It's kind of overstated just how much this is occurring. 
Because, okay, so Trump lost by 20 points last time. He lost by 12 points this time. It's like, yeah, there was a break towards Trump among Latinos. Is it anything to write home about? No. It's the same thing as, like, when people claim, like, there's a realignment happening and Republicans are becoming the party of the working class. My ass cheek, son. I got news for you. Nobody's the party of the working class. The Democrats screw the working class all the time, and the Republicans screw the working class all the time. What they mean is, like, hey, you have Josh Hawley every now and then saying things that are tough on trade, and you have Marco Rubio pretending now to be, like, tough on trade, and every now and then they'll say the words, like, American worker. And so the rhetoric is there, just like Trump, the rhetoric is there, but the rhetoric doesn't match the reality. They don't actually fight for economic policy that benefits the working class. So it's just optics. It's all optics in that case. So is there a real party realignment happening? No, of course not. The only adult and accurate view of politics in this country right now is that there is no party of the working class. The working class has been absolutely abandoned. Are there a few little issues here and there where the Democrats serve the working class more? Yeah. But are they, does that make them a working class party? No. By and large, they're screwing the working class. And certainly the Republicans, in terms of how they govern, is not at all in any way, shape, or form in favor of the working class. So there is no party realignment happening. And in terms of Trump doing a little bit better with Latinos, Trump doing a little bit better with black people, that's also just the power of incumbency as well. And the fact that, you know, it could just be that his opponent clearly is mentally and cognitively declining, and some people recognize that, and they were like, I'm not going to vote for that. Again, it's complex. It's complicated. There's a million and one reasons why um, it could have happened. But Obama's answer is too simplistic and too much in service of his own ends. But Fox News getting outraged over it is just, it's obviously fake outrage. Because at one point, they even agreed with him. And they were like, yeah, well, we think it's because of abortion. Yeah, with some, with some of them, sure. But there are plenty others where that's not the case. So, you know, I, I know it's tough to talk about these issues because you really need an open-ended format like the one I have right now because you can't really explain how complicated and nuanced and, and interesting it is in these little stupid Fox News sound bites where that guy who's talking has the most fake announcer voice of all time. God, I hate that so much. Oh, I hate that with every fiber of my being. The, like, fake announcer voice. And Obama said this. Can you believe that? <laughs> Disrespecting these people. Oh, my God. Stop. You know you don't talk like that. Like, who wakes up? Can you imagine that guy waking up in the morning and, Honey, I would like to have some coffee. Did you put the coffee pot on? The wife would be like, I'm going to go buy a pistol and blow this idiot's brain out at night. Because, like, what are you doing? That's not, no human being is actually like that. No human being talks like that. Anyway, I'm just babbling now. I'm off in Nowheresville. But, um, yeah, there was a, a movement, Latinos and black people. Trump did better among them. But the other interesting part is he actually did worse among suburban whites. That's why Arizona, for example, went to Biden, because old suburban white people with investments who are retired, they look at Trump and they're like, this guy's just not stable. And we think Biden will be a status quo guy. And we love the status quo. We love the status quo. I live on a golf course in Arizona and I play golf all the time and watch my stock portfolio go up. I want business as usual. So a lot of those people broke for Biden. So an interesting dynamic in the election all around is that probably the main reason Biden won is because he chipped away more at the older white people. And also probably had a lot to do with COVID, how Trump's not handling COVID well, and he's just not good at governing. 
Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I don't know why I'm still babbling. Let's end this segment right now. But there you have it. Obama, um, you know, with his theory on why Latinos voted for Trump more in 2020 than they did in 2016. Okay. All right, let's uh, let's move on here. Let's do one more before we take a break. We're going to talk about Neerotandon. Oh God! Here we go, Neerotandon. Do I want to talk about this? No. I do not. But will I talk about this? Yes, indeed I will. Shows how shows how the Biden administration does not give a fuck, not even a little bit. Natasha Bertrand says that Biden will nominate Neera Tandon, the president and CEO of the Center for American Progress, a center-left think tank, to serve as director of the Office of Management and Budget. And that's actually from Alex Thompson of Politico, who does a very good job. Turns out that's exactly what happened. We got the news today, right before I came on air. Uh, Neera Tandon has been picked for this position. This position is actually, you know, pretty important. It's a Senate-approved position, so... That'll be interesting to see what they have to say about her in the Senate. But um, it, she would help craft the budget. She would help craft the budget. Now, I know who my audience is. I know you guys are probably, almost all of you, familiar with Neera Tandon and just how much of a nightmare this is. But for those of you who aren't, let me give you a little bit of a refresher here. After one CAP official, Center for American Progress, Faz Shakir, who was also Bernie's campaign manager, by the way, noted how perverse it is to first bomb a poor country and then make it turn over its revenues to you for doing so. And then Tandon argued that this made a great deal of sense. Here's a, an email released by WikiLeaks. Faz Shakir is responding to Neera Tandon. The subject of the email is, should Libya pay us back? Faz says, I don't think it's fair that we create our own domestic problems and then ask other nations to pay for it. You see the adverse incentive problem here, right? If we think we can make money off of an incursion, we'll do it? That's a serious policy messaging moral problem for our foreign policy, I think. Nero responds, we have a giant deficit. They have a lot of oil. Most Americans would choose not to engage in the world because of the deficit. If we want to continue to engage in the world, gestures like having oil-rich countries partially pay us back doesn't seem crazy to me. That's Neera Tandon saying, do we illegally invade countries? Yeah, of course we do. When we illegally invade those countries, should we then steal their oil to pay us back pay down our deficit. She's cool with 
illegally invading countries, stealing their oil, and using that to reduce the deficit. Which, by the way, also shows she's a deficit hawk, which is literally the last thing you want at a time like right now, because you need deficit spending at a time like now, because we're effectively in a new Great Depression. And as we learn from history, to dig yourself out of a depression, you need public spending. It's like the New Deal, for example, and then World War II also, by the way. That helped get us out of the Great Depression, got the economy fired up again. When there's not much happening in the private sector, the public sector has to pick up slack. This is what we learned. Keynesianism 101. She's taking a right-wing view here without even realizing it. The right-wing view of paying down the deficit is like a priority or something, right? But then also totally cool with illegally invading countries and stealing their stuff, invading sovereign nations, stealing their natural resources. This is exactly, this is a Republican view. This is a Trump view. Trump has said himself, we need to steal the oil. We should have steal the oil. He was talking about Iraq specifically. She's talking about Libya here. But this says a lot about Neera Tandon. This one story says a lot about Neera Tandon. By the way, there are a million of them. There's another one where Zed Jelani, um, who used to work for Center for American Progress, used to work for Think Progress, um, he says, because Neera Tannen was one of his bosses, he says he reported critically on Mike Bloomberg. And then Neera Tanden scolded him and said, don't do that because we're trying to get money from him for Think Progress. So she was soliciting a billionaire for a donation and telling her workers, hey, I don't want to hear any criticism of him. Don't run stories that are critical of him. Don't run stories of a billionaire oligarch mayor that are critical. Because I, I want money for our organization. Like, she doesn't even have the intelligence to sort of take the, the rough edges off of it. It's just like she may as well have called Zed into the office and said, Hey, Zed, I'm corrupt. We are very corrupt. We need to continue the corruption. Please don't get in the way. She also, by the way, censored people at Think Progress from reporting critically on Israel. She, you know, famously had an interview with Netanyahu and sat down and got chummy with him. But she would get mad anytime people, anytime people at Think Progress would report critically on Israel. Um, and I should also note that, guys, this is why. Why do you think she so fiercely opposed Bernie in the primary? Is because she is a career Democratic insider, totally talentless. And she knows that if Bernie were to get in power, her career is done. There's no way she'd get a job inside of Bernie Sanders' administration. There's no way she'd get a job if you had somebody who's a principled social democrat in office because she's a neoliberal corporatist and an interventionist, and the philosophies don't line up. So she knows if he gets elected, my career is over. And so she opposed him so fiercely, as fierce as anybody. And now she got her way. Joe Biden won. And now, look at that. She's getting paid off for being a, a Democratic establishment hack for so long. Well, she's getting paid off for it. Um, there's a million stories we could talk about with Neera Tandon. I could go on all day. She, she's in favor of Social Security cuts. So she's a deficit hawk, and she's in favor of cuts to Social Security she also outed a sexual harassment victim at Think Progress, although to be fair, I don't know if she did that on purpose or if it was just an accident. Um, there was a story where she punched 
Baz Shakir, again, he also was there at Think Progress, she punched him. Why? Because Foz interviewed Hillary Clinton, and he had the nerve to ask Hillary Clinton about her support of the Iraq War. I think Nero was mad about that question because I guess she had told Hillary, hey, come do an interview with us, and she probably made it seem like it's going to be patty cakes and puppies and rainbows, and we're not going to ask any hard questions. And so Foz asked a hard question, and then she punched Foz in the chest because she was mad that Foz asked a real question. Again, I could go on and on with Nero all day. She is the epitome. She's the quintessential. She's the archetype of the corporate Democrat. And now she's getting paid off. So anyway, um, how's that pushing Biden left thing going? At least eight cabinet have been made at the, by this point. You know how many of them are, were Bernie Sanders supporters or, or are left approved? Zero. O for eight. O for eight. So how's the pushing left going? Guys, listen, when I make arguments on this show, I don't, I don't do it for the hell of it. I do it because I really believe the things I'm saying. And one of, the, one of the cases you heard me make endlessly is that don't give me a plate full of shit and say it's a fudge brownie. It's not a fudge brownie. It's a plate of shit. And what I was seeing from many people on the left is we're going to get Biden elected, and then on day one we're going to push him left. Gosh, golly, hoo, 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 hoo. And it's like, no, you're bullshitting. You're delusional. The argument you had to make, which would have been an honest argument at least, is, yeah, I'm going to vote for Biden. But I'm going to vote for Biden knowing he's going to suck, knowing he's going to be a neoliberal corporatist. But you know what? I prefer neoliberal corporatism to neoconservative authoritarianism and trickle-down economics. If you made that argument... Okay, that's an honest argument. That's a fair argument. It's acknowledging he's going to be abysmal, and there's no changing him. But no, what I saw from lefties was, we're going to change him and push him left. (laughs) No, you're not. No, you're not. Stop lying to yourself. Stop being delusional. If you're going to make a case, make it on its merits. Be truthful. But they they weren't truthful. They lied to themselves. They lied to everybody else. And now we're casually watching Nero Tandon get picked for important positions. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about us. Ain't going to be no reaching out to the left. As I said, it's all placating and it's all symbolic whenever he reaches out to the left at all. That the unity commission, let's sit around with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other lefties and say to them, that's a very good idea. Now let's water it down and then we'll make a list and these are things that we'll consider. Well, congratulations. You know what he's going to do? He's going to take one look at them and say, I have considered them and I'm against them. Thank you very much. It was literally just a pat on the head. That's it, just placating you. Let me make you feel like you're part of some serious process. Let's sit in a conference room and talk these things out. It's going to ignore you. The left will never win until they begin to understand how power functions. And right now, they're fundamentally naive to how power functions. And it's kind of embarrassing. Even Bernie. Bernie's about 312 years old, and he's been in politics since 1792. And he didn't understand that you had to get concessions up front from Biden before you dropped out to campaign for him. You didn't understand that it's a tit for tat. You say to him, I will campaign for you. I will get my 30% block of the party to vote for you. But here are my demands. One of those things is labor secretary, because he wants to be labor secretary. And Biden signaling, I'm not going to give you labor secretary. You didn't understand you had to get the concessions up front? That you don't, like, casually assume that a corporate snake is going to 
work with you on what you want? You didn't get that? Or did you get that and you didn't care? That I don't even want to entertain when it comes to Bernie because I trust that he means well. But, I mean, it's sad, man. It's really sad to watch. It's so sad. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. We had Bill Clinton 1.0, Bill Clinton 2.0, which was Barack Obama, and now Bill Clinton 3.0. At a time where we desperately need a new FDR, this is what we got. We have Neera Tandon making decisions in between starting Twitter fights with people that have, you know, Twitter pictures of gritty. I stole that joke from one of the Chapo guys. <laughs> Felix made that joke. Anyway, uh, yeah, she'll be fighting with somebody on Twitter who has the Twitter picture of gritty, and then she'll immediately pivot towards cutting Social Security and making Grandma go hungry. We live in a world that is sheer hell. Okay. All right, guys, let's take a break. When we come back, I got a hell of a lot more for you, including Stephen Colbert makes an ass of himself, and it brings me no pleasure to point it out and laugh at it.
We back, bitch. Just in time to make fun of Stephen Colbert. <clears throat> I'm sad about what happened to him. He used to be something, something special. He had such a great show back in the day when he was on Comedy Central. And then now I just can't watch it. It's just like boomer liberalism personified. Okay, let me set this up for you. Let me find... Let me find Republican Senators. Here we go. Okay. Get ready to cringe, ladies and gentlemen. Stephen Colbert talked to Obama, and I want you to take note of the tension in the room and just how deeply awkward this exchange was. President Obama, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. It is wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to see you. I, it, is good to, it, it is good to be seen. I've been seeing you on television, but it's mm-hmm. good to see you in person. That's kind of helped the demo in some. How old are you? Are you, are you, are you, are you, are you, are you 18 to 54? I'm not the demographic you're looking for. Sorry, it doesn't it's count. Right. I apologize. Uh, doesn't count. Michelle says, hey. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. You know, good. She, you know she loves you. Well, I've I've really enjoyed spending some time with her over the last four years. I know. And, yeah, and, and she 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 adores you. She thinks the world of you. I think you're okay. Can we just just take a moment, can I just I don't, and I want to talk. I just I just want to take a moment to 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 drink you in for just a moment because <laughs> I'm having to get used to looking at a president <laughs> again. You know, I've gotten out of. I've gotten out of the habit. You got, got I got to warm up for Joe Biden. I don't want to pull anything when I see him take the oath of office. You got to ease me into this a little bit. Joe's going to be great, and, and I have no Kamala doubt. is going to be great. And uh, you know they're they're going to have big challenges ahead. But uh, uh, you know we we've got the potential of uh, returning to uh, a a presidency that is actually paying attention and, and trying to you know, do right by all people and not just some. The Stephen Colbert that hosted the Comedy Central show, I feel like he would make fun of people like this. I get it. He was playing like, you know, the satirical Bill O'Reilly type character, but like, this is really sycophantic and sort of the opposite how, you know, I perceived him back in the day when he would follow Jon Stewart on The Daily Show. It's kind of amazing. I've never, I've never seen a show that was so good and a person who was so talented just, like, have the opposite happen in a very short time frame. Like, I get it that The Late Show is a totally different format and he can be himself versus when he's playing a character on the Comedy Central show, but I went from really liking him and respecting him and being interested in his stuff to, like, now I literally just can't watch it. I can't watch it. It's like, it's like boomer liberalism personified. Everything about it is just so smug and insufferable. So, I mean, what does he say to him? He says, can we just take a minute? I want to drink you in. I want to soak you in. I want because I'm looking at a real president. And it gets to the point where it looks like Obama even feels uncomfortable, right? 
Like, that's the sense I got, looking at, like, the way Obama does, like, that sort of awkward laugh, like, ha, 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 this is weird. Because he doesn't, he's not going to sit down and talk to Stephen Colbert to have some weird, like, fawn session. He, he's going to have an interview, and he wants to, you know, I guess, make the case for Kamala and Joe, or say what they're going to do, or whatever the case is. Or, no, he's selling his book, I'm sorry, it's just, I forgot for a second that he, he had his book. Um, but... He does seem, like, sort of uncomfortable. I, listen, I think on some level Obama knows that a lot of the sycophantic fawning is unearned. I think Obama is smart enough to know that the way in which he's perceived, there's this, like, deification of him. They try to make him, make him out like he's some sort of democratic messiah. And I think he knows deep down that that's silly and that that's ridiculous because on, in so many important ways he failed. I mean, even by his own standards, he kind of failed because he would, he kept reaching out to Republicans, kept reaching out to Mitch McConnell and John Boehner and trying to get them to agree to certain things, and they never did. And they were super-duper obstructionist in every sense of the, of the word to the extent that even when Obama had a supermajority and they got Obamacare through, they did it with zero Republican votes. And part of Obama's political identity is this triangulation and working with the other side and being bipartisan, and they kept spinning in his eyes. So he didn't succeed in the thing. He was supposed to succeed on and campaigning on ending the Iraq war. And then when we got out, we were still in Iraq. Like there's a number of things, bailing out Wall Street, giving them basically a blank check. And they went right back to doing what they were doing before. There's a number of things that are just like, yeah, you failed. You flat out failed. You think he doesn't know on some level that he failed on a number of things? He has his successes. I always say what he did with Iran and what he did with Cuba were two of the best things. Starting to pardon some nonviolent drug offenders was good. Like, there are good things, but so many of the things are bad, and I think on some level he knows it. So this weird deification and this weird worship of him. Now, I get it that Stephen Colbert is not, you know, part of, like, the hard-hitting, what's supposed to be the hard-hitting news media. He's just a late-night talk show host, but what do, you, what do you want out of somebody in the media in his position? Because I'll tell you what I want, and maybe it's not fair because, again, he's not in the news but I want tough questions asked of somebody with so much power. I mean, he had so much power, and he could have done so many things differently. And so I would ask those questions. Why didn't you do X, Y, and Z? Why didn't you take marijuana off of the, the list as a Schedule One drug? We know it's not a Schedule One drug, but you kept it there. Why would you do that? You know, it, ask real questions. Ask him why the first thing he did when he left the White House. You remember this? The very first story that came out about Obama after he was president was that he was giving a speech to Wall Street and making $400,000 for it. That was the very first news story about Obama after he got out of the White House. Do people just like, do people forget that? Did you not care? Were you making excuses for that from second one as you heard it? I don't know. I'm asking. But that stuck with me. And I know that probably stuck with a lot of the people who watch my show, because what does that say about him? It says who he was in bed with, who he served. I mean, come on. Bailed them out with no strings attached. So, yeah, when he got out, they looked out for him. A lot of it was kabuki theater, where they would pretend to be mad at him and pretend like he's tough on them, and he just wasn't. So, you know, I don't know, man, but this it, it gives me a bad feeling. It gives me, like, a shitty vibe in the pit of my stomach to watch adults, like a grown man sort of groveling and being sycophantic and deifying a president. Because 
think about the way that I try to approach these things. Think about the way you try to approach these things. Do I have politicians that I like more than others? Of course, everybody does. There are some people who more philosophically align with you. Duh. But the reality has to override whatever kind of feelings you have towards them. So in the case of Bernie, yeah, the more time went by, the more I criticized him because the more I saw him making strategic mistakes. I could agree with the guy on the substance of the policies he's in favor of, like Medicare for All, but if his strategy is making Medicare for All less likely, I have to call that out, which is what I did when he didn't demand better from Joe and didn't negotiate in a firm way and just sort of did whatever Joe wanted and then hoped Joe would repay it. I had to criticize Bernie really vociferously and fiercely, ferociously even, because he was wrong. That's Nobody's above criticism, including me. I'm a fucking idiot. Everybody knows I'm an idiot. I've been an idiot my entire life. <laughs> I'm a jackass. Yeah, so everybody, nobody's above criticism. So hold people accountable, especially if you're in the media and you're talking to a very powerful person who had real-world consequences for their actions. You have to do it, but he's not doing it. And it's just, I'm amazed that this is what he's become. He's become just a standard boomer liberal, diehard, hardcore Democratic partisan. It's like, what do you even believe in? What do you believe in, Stephen Colbert? Blue team good. Yay. Blue team good. Trump really bad. That's not difficult. I get it. There, I mean, some people don't get it, right? 40% of the country, 45% of the country don't necessarily think Trump is bad. Yeah, Trump is really bad. I get that. Most of you guys get that. Trump is terrible. That's not that difficult. Let's move on to the next step. It's like we started a game, we did step one, and they've just been stuck on step one for years. Like Trump bad? Yeah, yeah, Trump's bad. Okay, but Trump bad? Yeah, Trump bad. Right, right, but Trump bad. Yes, Trump is bad. Can we get to the next goddamn thing? It's not that difficult. It's not that hard. We figured that out a long goddamn time ago. How does this still intellectually stimulate you? <laughs> right? Like how that intellectually stimulates you still? Trump is really bad. Oh, yeah, 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 he's so really bad. You're so right. Oh, my God, let's talk about this for the next two and a half fucking years. We got it. We got it. But that's the whole animating worldview now. I, it, it's just sad. You're a grown-ass man operating on a weak, low frequency, and it's unserious. And even Obama, there's got to be an immediate dip of, like, respect, person to person, man to man here. Seeing how say, can I soak you in? Can I just drink you in? And Obama's like, this is fucking weird. Obama would rather be sitting across from me grilling his ass than sitting across from Stephen Colbert and feeling awkward, getting groveled over. As if it's some sort of, you know, ex that he that Stephen Colbert still has feelings for. Just making the whole situation weird. Obama's like, ha ha ha, this is awkward. what happened to Stephen Colbert. It breaks my heart, man. It really does. Okay, next. <sighs> we are going to talk about
Republican senators showing their true colors. And in this case, it has to do with the deficit. Republican senators are now on record talking to the media about what their plan is under Biden, how they're going to react to whatever Biden does, really. So the Hill says the following. Republicans ready to become deficit hawks again under a President Biden. Now, right off the bat, that makes no sense because they were never deficit hawks. Are there times that they embrace the rhetoric of being a deficit hawk? Yes. Where they pretend to care about that issue? Yes. Have they ever, in their entire history, actually governed in a way to care about that issue? No, never. 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 Ronald Reagan, the, the demigod among Republican presidents, increased the debt and the deficit throughout his entire time in office. George W. Bush, same thing, massively increased it. Donald Trump, who they love, massively increased it. So the, the reality never matches up with the rhetoric, ever. Except for one occasion, and that's actually recurring, to be fair. Only when a Democrat is president do they try to implement austerity budgets. Only when a Democrat is president. And, and why is that? Well, the answer is very simple. Austerity hurts the public. When the government spends less and less, that actually hurts the public, hurts your average American, and makes it, believe it or not, that the private sector function as well. Because as a general rule, public deficits mean private surpluses. So in other words, anytime there's like a big stimulus, right, that happened, you know, after the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession, the bailout of GM, for example, the stimulus bill, that helped the economy. Because it pumped more money in the economy made it there was more economic activity. It's almost like true by definition. It's like a tautology. So it works. That works. So when you do the opposite of that, it hurts the, public, the private sector, and it hurts the American people. So what the Republicans want to do is they want to implement austerity budgets only when a Democrat is president, because then the unemployment rate will rise, wages will fall, people will be worse off, and then there will be a backlash at the ballot box. And, you know, usually the rule is you vote out whoever the current governing party is. And so since it would be Biden in office, it would help a Republican in 2024. That's the mindset. That's the mindset. Now, perhaps previously I wouldn't have said that they do this on purpose. But no, now I think for sure they do it on purpose. They know exactly what they're doing. Because they didn't say a goddamn word at all at any step of the way about the debt and the deficit under Trump. Now it will be all that they talk about. It'll be all that they talk about under four years of Biden. And take note, guys, this isn't a little thing here because every single year the military budget increased. And it got more and more absurd as time went by. It, it, It really is a ridiculous military budget. Like, it's just a colossal waste. We spend more than the next 10 or 12 countries combined, and most of them are our allies. It's ridiculous. And so we spent so much on the military. We did a a tax cut 
for the wealthy, 83% of the benefits went to the wealthy, that added $1.9 trillion to the deficit over a decade. So they're constantly doing big spending and deficit spending at that. They, none of them blinked. Even the people who pretend to care the most about this issue, like Rand Paul, he voted for the tax cut, which added $2 trillion to the deficit. Obviously, they value tax cuts for the rich more than they value concern about the deficit. They only trot this out when it's a Democratic president and whenever anything is floated to actually help average people. Notice, they'll always cry about the debt and the deficit if you talk about, for example, universal health care, which is hilarious, too, because they don't know that it actually saves $5 trillion over a decade because you're getting rid of the unnecessary, rapacious, mafia-like middleman. When you get rid of the middleman, you save money. That's how it works. But they pretend like it's more expensive, and they say, how can we afford to pay for it? Free college, same thing. Oh, my God, how can we pay for it? You could have done free college for the entire country with just the increase in the military budget from two years ago. Not even the whole military budget, just the increase in the military budget. Free college costs like about $65 billion, and the increase in the military budget was like 85 or $90 billion. But they'll only trot it out when it's to help you, and they'll only break out the austerity when a Democrat is president, and they actively, it really is like a hostage situation. Let's hurt the American public, hurt them to the point where they finally let us back in power. They vote out the current president and let us back in power. That's the idea. I'll give you one quote from the article. This is from uh, Senator John Thune, Republican of South Dakota. He says, I think that's kind of getting back to our DNA. I think spending, entitlement reform, growth, and the economy are all things that we're going to have to be focused on next year. And yeah, I would expect you, I would expect you'll hear a lot more about that. So they're all on the same page. They had the meetings. They know that this is what they're going to do moving forward. Deficit, 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 debt, 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 debt. Um, and the part that should scare you maybe the most is this. The Democrats are going to meet them halfway. So in other words, they're going to take their considerations about the deficit seriously. They're going to, they're going to react as if, oh, you know, my esteemed colleague on the other side is right to be concerned about the giant increase in the deficit, even though we're basically in a new Great Depression and it's the last thing you should be concerned about. They won't say that part. They'll say that, oh, my esteemed colleague is right to worry about this. So let's come together and work out a budget that we can agree on. We're not going to agree on everything, but let's work out a bipartisan budget. And that's what you should fear, because they bring up entitlement reform. That's what Obama tried to do. Obama and Biden tried to cut Social Security and Medicare. And the only thing that saved us from getting that implemented was that the Tea Party wanted more cuts. And they were so extreme and they were so out there that they shut down the whole process of the so-called moderates working together to cut Social Security and Medicare in what's called a grand bargain. That's what you should fear, because that's what I fear. I fear that Joe Biden and a bunch of the Democrats will work with Republicans to do a grand bargain to cut Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. And then they'll turn around and they'll say, I don't know why anybody's mad. I don't know why the lefties are mad. Why are you mad? We're not cutting these programs. We're saving them. We're saving them for the long run. That's what we're doing. So we're not cutting them. We're reforming them. And there probably will be enough people to get duped where this gets done. And then, and then you have Mitch McConnell and, and Joe Biden holding this up as like some sort of achievement. As I say to you guys all the time, 
most of the time that bipartisan deals are cut, they're actually terrible. They're abysmal. Very rarely do you get bipartisan deals that are... See, bipartisanship isn't inherently good. It depends what's in the deals. So if you have two corporatists, one a Republican, one a Democrat, working together to deregulate more, that's usually bad. If you have a libertarian and a progressive working together to end war, that's good. But most of the time in D.C., they're working together to serve Wall Street and the military-industrial complex, and that's not good. And in this case, I can see them working together to cut Social Security under the guise of having to do it and reforming the programs. And so this is really, really a bad situation to be in because the Republicans are immediately going to go all in on the deficit hawkery. They're going to act like we got to do this. We have no choice. And the Democrats will say, that seems reasonable. I'll meet you halfway. All the while, like 30% or 40% of the American people are going to be unable to pay their rent or their mortgage. And these protections are going to wear off over time. And then what are we going to do? Are we going to have another colossal homelessness crisis? We have maybe 500,000 to a million homeless people now. There were some estimates it could go as high as 28 million if this is not addressed. 28 million. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Tell you what, these people are not going to save you. And the Democrats certainly are not going to save you. I mean, I know I'm a broken record, but I really think a general strike is our best path forward. And the general strike has to be crystal clear about what exactly we're fighting for. We want Medicare for all. We want free college. We want a living wage. We want to end the wars and reinvest that here at home. It's got to be something simple, basic, where you can get people, all voters on the left to agree, and even moderates and even some disaffected Republicans to agree on the economic populism. It's got to be focused in that way. Can we get it done? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have high hopes because I don't see we're the least organized people on the planet, least organized on the planet, and that has consequences. Okay, let's move on to how the reality show is never going to fucking end. Our national reality show is apparently never, ever going to end. President Trump is reportedly considering kicking off his 2024 campaign during President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration, the Daily Beast reported. Three people familiar with the conversations told the news outlet that the president has been discussing the specifics of a campaign launch with close advisors and confidants. Two sources said that Trump has floated the idea of a 2024-related event during Biden's inauguration week, possibly on Inauguration Day, if his legal efforts to overturn the 2020 election fail. (laughs) If, that's hilarious. Uh, The Hill has reached out to the White House and Trump's re-election campaign for comment. Bloomberg reported on Thursday that Trump said he planned to run in 2024 if his attorneys could not overturn the results of the 2020 election, the Daily Beast noted. A possible 2024 bid has some support from GOP voters. One poll from Seven Letter Insight found that 66% of Republican voters would support the president running in 2024. A separate Morning Consult political poll found that 54% would vote for the president in a 2024 primary. Now, I have to say, I was wrong about something. I said to you guys that 
oftentimes when somebody loses, it's like they get branded as a loser and that impacts their viability moving forward. So like you have to go into the wilderness for a while. In the case of Hillary, she literally went to the wilderness. Um, but like John McCain had to go away. Mitt Romney had to go away for a while after losing in 2012. When you lose, the idea is you lost. Politically, you're not what we're looking for. And there's got to be consequences for that. And in turn, one of the things that happens is there is a bad wagon effect where when you lose, you go down in popularity more. And whoever wins, regardless of the substance of what they're about, they go up in popularity. Uh, and we actually just saw that with a new poll on Biden. Biden's got a 55% approval rating. That's in, in our extremely partisan times, tribal partisan times, 55% is amazing. It's through the roof. Um, so Trump, but Trump didn't have that downturn yet. Trump, since he's so insistent that he won, over time he's been chipping away at the Republican base and more and more Republicans are like, I don't know, maybe he did win. And this is all fraudulent and fake. So he's been chipping away nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. And now, I mean, 66% of Republican voters support him running in 2024. 54% say they'd definitely vote for him. 54%. He would win the primary easy. Easy. So he didn't have that downturn, which is amazing. Now, in terms of what he is maybe considering doing here, I think that's so Trumpy and it's just so perfect. I mean, it really is. This is so Trump. The, the idea that perhaps even during Biden's inauguration, he'll be doing a rally somewhere, knowing that a lot of the media outlets would kind of split time between the inauguration and the rally. I mean, he's done similar things. If I, if I remember correctly, there was one time where he actively pulled out of a debate, but then he held an event that was like on at the exact same time as the debate where he was like raising money for veterans or something, which by the way, turned out to be a big scam as almost everything is with Trump. Um, but that's what he does. He does stuff like this. And so there's a chance he would do it on Inauguration Day. Maybe he somehow has a, a moment of clarity and says, okay, this is a little too far. Doubt it, but who knows. If he were to do it on Inauguration Day, oh, my God. That is so crazy. But, guys, the, it, this ride is never going to end. And the other thought that makes me laugh is um, what the other Republicans have to feel like right now. Because a lot of Republicans sort of hopped onto the Trump bandwagon knowing that he has the heart of the base. And so they have presidential ambitions for the future. And so they're hopping on board because they know they have no other option. If they want to win the presidency and they want to win as a Republican, they have to be sufficiently Trumpian in some way, right? Whether it's personally or through their connections or whatever. Well, now a lot of those guys, they are so heated behind the scenes, you, you can't believe it. They, all of them feel like, oh, my God, this guy is going to stab us all in the back. Of course he's going to stab you all in the back. He only ever cared about himself the entire time. It wasn't obvious when he fired people in his administration every seven and a half seconds. They looked at him the wrong way. He, he's all about himself, duh. But now you have people like Ted Cruz, who's been trying to act like Trump on Twitter for the past few years. He's like, God damn it, now I have to wait longer. Mike Pence probably wanted to use Trump as like a springboard to the presidency for himself. And Mike Pence definitely thinks of himself as part of some grand God plan. Like he thinks he's God's chosen one and there's a path for him to the White House. But he's been sufficiently loyal to Trump the whole time. Now Trump would have to basically say to Pence, like, still not your time, dog. You can't run in 2024. 
you know, you got to be my VP role with me in 2024, and maybe in 2028, that's when I support you, and that's when you do it. But they're mad. Then you got the up-and-comers, like Josh Hawley, for example. He definitely has ambitions for the future, but now he's got to hold off on that as well. Nikki Haley, incredibly boring. The only reason why she's even considered legitimate is because Republicans love playing identity politics, too, where they could say, oh, how dare you criticize her? She's a woman and a woman of color. So you're racist and sexist for criticizing her. Like, they love playing the identity game, too, and that's what Nikki Haley gives them. Somebody who the establishment absolutely loves and who has that card to pull out on the Democrats, and the Democrats are so dumb, the elected Democrats are so dumb, they'll half agree with those criticisms because they're just so stupid. Um, but all of them, that you, it's like Trump was like, pause, I'm going to press pause on all that, and there ain't nothing you can do about it because I got the base with me. What now, bitch? And I kind of love that he's just throwing a wrench in the whole Republican machinery. But I do wish, like, I, I do think, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I overstated this because some of the polls show it's actually not that close. There was one poll that had Romney somewhat close to Trump. But a new poll came out, and it showed Trump is just draxing everybody in sight. And he would, you know, easily get the nomination for the Republicans in 2020. But, like, there could be a Republican civil war. And I told you guys, just along, like, cultural lines and Trump lines. So you could have, like, the middle class and, and, and the more poor Republicans side with Trump and Trumpism, and then you have the Mitt Romney types, the more elitist types, side with more of the upper middle class and upper class rich Republican interests who want that veneer of respectability and think Trump doesn't offer that. So I think there can be a Republican civil war, but, I mean, it's also possible he just straight alphas all the other ones into a corner and is like, listen, I'm still, I'm still the guy. Sorry, I will be running in 2024 as well, and there ain't nothing you can do about it. So who knows? I don't know. We're going to have to wait and see it all unfold. But the funny thing is, I think everybody kind of assumes he's running now in 2024, right? Like, there's been so many articles about it and so many whispers behind the scenes that now I think it's like the conventional wisdom position that everybody's like, yeah, he's running in 2024. But that means, for God's sake, we can't get a breather. I mean, we got a president who's in cognitive decline. He fell the other day, by the way. He fell and fractured his foot. Apparently, they said he was playing with his dog and he fell. I don't know if I believe that story. He could have just fallen because when you're really old, sometimes you fall. I mean, having a Bernie, too, and I love Bernie, but it did. Um, so we got a president cognitively declining. Not the best scenario to be in. And then we got this idiot and moron, totally unhinged, who's like, I'm going to come back in 2024. I mean, it's just it's overwhelming evidence of imperial decline, and I think that's clear. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about the rise of the Tea Party and the rise of Justice Democrats. This is a nice little news segment that I want to talk to you about. And you'll see the difference, too. You'll see the difference in the two of them as well. So this is a great little news segment here. I think it's on um, ABC. And it's about the rise of the Tea Party and the rise of Justice Democrats. 
let's take a look at how they frame this, and then I have a lot to say about it. When House Speaker John Boehner abruptly retired in 2015, his fall was widely attributed to mounting pressure in disputes about the debt ceiling and other issues from fellow Republican lawmakers, especially an upstart group of ultra-conservatives who called themselves the Freedom Caucus, and at whom Boehner directed a parting shot. Yes, freedom makes all things possible, but patience is what makes all things real. Boehner's successor, Republican Congressman Paul Ryan, only took the gavel on the condition that the Freedom Caucus endorse him. Within three years, Ryan, too, subjected to similar pressures in the Trump era, would retire abruptly. Wait, let me just say that the old partisan gridlock of the 90s, when President Clinton and GOP House Speaker Newt Gingrich waged battle over two government shutdowns, has only worsened with the rise since then of intra-party gridlock. The only election that most members of Congress care about is their primary. Brendan Buck served as press secretary to Speaker Boehner and as counselor to Speaker Ryan. All members end up doing is, is watching their, their right flank if they're Republican or their left flank if they're Democrat. What that ends up cultivating is an incentive structure where you are more likely to be rewarded for being against your own party, demonstrating that you are to the right or the left of the leadership, depending on where you are, rather than finding any type of solution. If you can't even get your own party on the same page, um, how then can you have a battle of ideas with the other party? The rise of social media and well-funded outside political action groups have diminished the power of the Democratic and Republican National Committees and increased the frequency of divisive primary campaigns that topple entrenched party leaders. Such as when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez ousted Joe Crowley, the number four House Democrat, in 2018, and when 16-term Democrat Elliot Engel, the House Foreign Affairs Chairman, fell this year to Jamal Bowman. While the Democrats as a party have not been immune to intra-party warfare, the party's leadership has been. Nancy Pelosi last week received unanimous nomination from her caucus to return as House Speaker, and she is expected to face only token opposition when she seeks re-election in January. Reporting from Chesapeake Bay, Maryland, James Rosen. See, that is the major difference that they just kind of glossed over a little bit there, but I think it's really important because it's everything. Everything is embedded in that difference. So, yes, the similarities are that ideologically the Tea Party came up and said, we hate the Republican establishment just like we hate the Democratic establishment. Here are the things we believe in. And, you know, one of those things is probably, oh, the spending is out of control, so we need to, you know, try to stop that. And we need you to resist Obama harder. So that was their thing. Now, Justice Democrats came up, uh, and the whole idea behind Justice Democrats is, Let's have lefties who are actually lefties, who are willing to fight for the policies that they believe in, and they need to take on the Democratic establishment as much as they take on the Republicans. So those are the similarities. And is there a similar dynamic in that, yes, you have people that are in the establishment of both parties that are scared of getting knocked off by somebody to their left, if they're a Democrat, somebody to their right, if they're a Republican? Yes, that's all real and good. But the main difference is the Republican leadership was actually challenged by the Tea Party to the point where you had multiple Republican leaders say, fuck this, it's not worth it, I'm out. Fuck this, it's not worth it, I'm out. Paul Ryan, John Boehner, both of them are like, I'm done here, I'm done here, I can't, I can't please all the factions, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I, there's, it, this is unworkable. I'm out. So the Tea Party made life for Republican leadership hell because they actually demanded stuff. Compare that with Justice Democrats. 
And what is effectively, it's the left Tea Party. Nancy Pelosi is getting approved for these positions with unanimous consent. And they don't really hold her feet to the fire. They don't really make her life a living hell. Whenever she gives them token gestures or symbols of agreement, right, pats them on the head or whatever, you know, they're like, cool. AOC famously called her the mama bear. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is the mama bear of the Democratic Party. It's just too easy to placate the left. And I think, and I don't think the left means bad by it, right? I don't think they mean bad by it. I think that they think, listen, there's a process in place. There's a hierarchy in the Democratic Party. The hierarchy, to one extent or another, is sort of earned. So Nancy's in that position because she's been here in Washington, D.C. forever, and she worked her way up, and she's there because she deserves to be there as a leader. And, like, who am I as a freshman member or sophomore member or junior member of Congress? Who am I to sort of, like, shake things up and to really challenge the power within the structure of the Democratic Party? And they also think, I think they rationalize it by saying, if I get in tight with leadership like Pelosi, then she'll return the favor Like, if I look out for her, she'll look out for me, and that means I could go further, and I could try to do more good for people if I don't make an enemy out of people who are supposed to be my ally. Like, I think I'm trying here to see it from their perspective, to see it from the perspective of the Justice Democrats and and why they're doing things that they do. But ultimately, no, I think the only way that we can affect change and actually get it is to make an enemy out of Democratic leadership and let them know that they're the enemy and let the media know that they're the enemy and let them know my whole job is to represent my constituents, is to represent the people. The people, my voters, and even the American people, forget just my voters and my constituents, the American people overwhelmingly want Medicare for all, want free college, want a living wage, want to end the wars, want a Green New Deal. I'm going to fight for these things, and if you get in the way, you're my enemy. How do you like them apples? And speak up and be heard and be principled and be aggressive. And I think the only way that we win on these things is if you make an enemy out of democratic leadership and if you make her life a living hell. I would have loved it if Nancy Pelosi was like, it's not worth it, I'm going to step down. But it is worth it for Nancy Pelosi because she always finds a way to unite the corporatists and the moderates and the left. And usually she unites them, almost always she unites them on the terms of the moderates. So that's the big difference. The big difference is the Tea Party barked, but they also bite. Justice Democrats, they barked, but there's not much bite there. And it pains me to say, but it's true. I think that, I still think they mean well, but they need to adjust that strategy moving forward. And if they don't adjust that strategy, we're never going to get any change, none of the things we want. How do we have a Democratic House and we've never had a vote on Medicare for all? We've never had a vote on it. And we have a Democratic House. What kind of a slap in the face is that when 70% of the country wants Medicare for all and we're in the middle of a pandemic? We're in the middle of a pandemic where tens of millions of people are losing their health insurance. And the idea from Pelosi was let's expand COBRA, which is a shitty neoliberal means-tested bullshit program. I mean, you have to treat her as the enemy because she is the enemy. You have to make enemies inside the party because there are enemies inside the party. They acknowledge there's a civil war, but you always fall in line and try to unify or whatever, but you end up unifying behind a corporate agenda. That's the problem. So take 
a lesson from the Tea Party. The lesson from the Tea Party is, no, we really do hate John Boehner and we hate Republican leadership as much as we hate the Democrats. And we're going to let them know that. And we're going to make their life a living hell. We're not going to take bullshit deals that don't give us anything what we want. Unfortunately, the left is convinced oftentimes, no, seriously, you're going to get nothing and you're going to be okay with it. And then for whatever reason, they're like, okay, yeah, I guess we're going to get nothing and we're going to be okay with it. And remember, guys, I'm talking specifically here about the people who have the right policy ideas, and I know they mean it. So I'm not talking about the liars. There's plenty of liars in the Progressive Caucus who will say good things, but they don't even really mean it. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the people, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, the ones who we like and who we know are with us on policy. I do think they mean well, and so I think that they have the ability to strategically switch it up. But they have to commit to strategically switching it up. And they have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. They have to be comfortable with making enemies and embracing the fact that they have enemies. And fighting this battle like it really matters. Fighting it like you're one of 5% or 10% of people in Congress who actually give a shit. Because I got news for you. You are. You are. You're part of 1% or 5% that actually gives a shit. So don't make friends with the people who are corrupt and who are too far gone in there. And who are only going to serve the corporations. Don't make friends with them. Don't go along to get along. Anyway. Yeah, I don't know, man. This is, uh, that's the big difference. The big difference is the Republican leadership hated the Tea Party. Democrat leadership, they don't like Justice Democrats, but they know they could get them to fall in line. And that's a problem. Get out of line and get out of line fast. Man, it is really fucking windy here. Holy shit. All right, y'all, let's talk about free college. Fox News went after the idea of free college with some terrible arguments. Let's take a look. I I want to talk about the fairness issue of of wiping out school debt first, because it's something that Democrats usually scream about is fairness, fairness, fairness. But Liz Warren, when she was on a campaign trail back in January, she went to Iowa. She was confronted uh, by a a working class American about the issue of school debt. Take a listen. and I want to get your reaction. So you make a mockery of people who played by the rules. 
I'm honestly amazed that, number one, anybody would make this argument, but number two, they would actually catch on with a number of people. That, and I, wouldn't, I really wouldn't expect it because it doesn't take that much thought to realize how absurd this idea is. So, I mean, their argument is effectively, hey, man, we can't make things better because then it's not fair to the people who were subject to the shittiness. So everybody needs to be subject to the shittiness or else it's unfair. You can literally use the argument against anything. Like indentured servitude, for example. Hey, you want to end indentured servitude? I don't think that's very fair to the people who were indentured servants. You know, go talk to the people who were indentured servants. They went through it all. What are you going to tell them now that they were suckers for going through it all? Because you want to end indentured servitude? It's not fair. Everybody should have to go through indentured servitude. Everybody should have to go through it. That's what that argument is. Here's another example. This one's great because it really shows you perfectly what this means. Um, hey, we have, what, 270,000 Americans who died from COVID-19, and you wanted to create a vaccine to save lives of people. Is that fair to the 270,000 people who died from COVID? That doesn't seem very fair now, does it? They already died from COVID. So anybody who gets it from here on out, they should, be, they should get the same experience. Maybe you die, maybe you don't. But hey, at least it's fair because everybody's treated the same. You didn't get very good treatment early on. You don't get very good treatment now. You want to create a vaccine. That's wildly unfair to the people who died from COVID. That's what this argument is. That's what this argument is. Now, imagine a parent saying this about their kid. A, a, you know, a first-generation immigrant, they came from a country that was at war and they had to hop on a boat in the year 18-something and come across the ocean and almost died and got sick and all that stuff. Imagine telling that person, I want your kids to have the exact same experience as you every step of the way. What would they say? They'd be like, no, the whole point of me coming here, I wanted to create a better life, not just for myself, but also for future generations. I don't want them to have to struggle as much as I've struggled because I don't think it was good. I don't think struggling as much is good. I wanted to escape it. People would say, are you crazy? I want what's better for my kids. So why should it be any different for your neighbor's kids or the person who lives down the block, their kids? It shouldn't be any different. So perhaps at some point you have to look in the mirror and ask yourself, maybe I'm just a shitty person if I don't want to eliminate student loan debt for people. Because by the way, it's also just a matter of principle, right? Like I don't think medical debt should exist as a matter of principle. It should never exist. You shouldn't maybe go bankrupt because you have to pay medical bills. I think that's stupid. The whole thing shouldn't exist. That whole concept, that whole idea. Same thing for a student loan debt. You know, we have free schooling up to a certain point. That's what public schools are. If you go to a public school, you're effectively getting free at the point of service school. You know, we did it elementary school, middle school, high school. That's what it was. The idea of free college is just go one step further with that. And the idea of wiping the debt slate clean is it should have been like this all along. So let's wipe the debt slate clean for these people. I mean, I'm just, I'm amazed at the arguments. And then the other one, and they didn't say it here, but I've been seeing it a lot lately, even from people I like, they're out there like, this is bailing out like upper middle class. Are you out of your fucking mind? Everybody who's upper middle class or wealthy that I know, their college was paid for by their parents. So they, they didn't have to take out student loans. Everybody I know who took out student loans, they're either middle class or poor. And so if you bail out those people, you're bailing out the middle class and the poor and effectively just giving them the same kind of opportunity that the upper middle class and the wealthy people had. 
So what, this idea that it's like, yo, it's only upper middle class people who are getting bailed out. What are you talking about? That's not true at all. In fact, the numbers show the exact opposite. It is the middle class and it is the poor who are getting more helped by this. So there's just so many shitty arguments on this front, but perhaps I shouldn't be surprised because there would be no good arguments against eliminating student loan debt in the same way there'd be no good arguments against eliminating medical debt. It's, one of, it's a very basic thing that in a civilized society you can and should take off the table. Education, healthcare, I mean, that's right, in, the, in my opinion, that's in the same category as like, police existing to make sure people don't murder people and like roads existing fire department that's very simple and straightforward the fact that we still have people contesting and contesting with such shitty arguments is really baffling and kind of terrifying to see okay guys let me do one more for you final story of the day here this is going to be jordan peterson Jordan Peterson is a really, really interesting character. Um, I don't know how many of you guys have watched his stuff online. I've seen quite a bit of his stuff online. Uh, as a general rule, I don't agree with him politically, usually. Like, he seems to be like a right-leaning guy, I would say. Overall, I think he leans right. Um, but outside of his politics being not great, in my opinion, uh, I think his, his psychology stuff is actually pretty good. And I'm, I'm somebody who's been interested in psychology my entire life. Um, I almost majored in psychology. I decided at the last minute, obviously, to do political science. But um, I was always very, very interested in psychology. The only thing that turned me off to really majoring in it is uh, this course that was called Statistics in Psychology. And it's, it's just math. And I am the biggest moron on the planet. In a number of ways, I'm the biggest moron on the planet. But um, I'm the biggest moron on the planet specifically when it comes to math. Like, I'm really, really bad at math. It's abysmal. It's like crazy how bad I am at math. But anyway, so that class was so hard that I was literally like, I, I will not be able to pass this class. It's so difficult. I'm dropping, I, I now have to drop psychology as my major because I'll never get through this class. And I needed that class to get a major in psychology. So anyway, I'm going off on a personal tangent here. It's totally irrelevant. But the fact of the matter is when I listen to Jordan Peterson's stuff on psychology, it's actually very interesting because he, he likes to loop in, like he believes, uh, Carl Jung, a lot of his stuff he likes, um, and he talks about that, and he'll bring in other uh, psychologists with different schools of thought, whether it's Freud or whoever, and he knows what they all taught and what they all believe, and he can kind of bring it all together and talk about his own sort of psychological philosophy, and, and it's interesting, it's interesting. So again, his politics, I don't agree with. Uh, I haven't heard him talk too much specifically about politics, but when he does talk about politics, it does strike me that he leans right. Um, but the psychology stuff, he's not bad at at all. But anyway, so he just went through a really, really rough period in his life where he got addicted to benzos, and then, you know, he, had, he went, he ended up in Russia trying to get treatment for the benzo addiction, and his daughter was with him, and his daughter's a weird character, to say the least, and he's on, he was on, this is crazy, he was on an all-meat diet, and I think he still might be. He was literally eating nothing but steak. It was like steak and, what else was it? Steak and like salt on the steak or, I don't know. It's like the all meat diet. Very weird. Very weird. I think most, you know, nutrition experts would say that is not a healthy thing to do. Um, but between the benzo addiction and probably the diet had something to do with it, he, uh, he was in trouble. And so he was in, almost died 
in some facility in Russia. And recently he, you know, came out of a coma and he's just reappearing now. Now listen, there really is a deep, deep irony in like this guy being a number one self-help guy. Like he, he, 12 Rules for Life was his book and it was a giant bestseller and he toured the world and he got super famous over a short period of time. Um, and to go from 12 rules and like, this is how you should live your life. Let me help you out. I'll be a self-help guru. And it looks like he's got all of his shit together to like, actually, not only does he not have his shit together, he almost died because it was so not together. Um, there is a deep irony there, you know, and I'm not, I don't say this to celebrate in his personal struggles at, at all. I, you know, I wish him the best. I wish everybody the best. I don't want anybody to go through something like that. I think it really is, I mean, it's torturous. And I feel nothing but sympathy for him. But there is an irony in, like, here's my self-help stuff, and I need it myself, and I'm not abiding by this and living by this, and I'm in trouble. There is a deep irony there. So anyway, he get, comes out of this coma, and then now they're just selling a book again. Jordan Peterson's selling a new book. It's called, like, 12 More Rules or something like that. And I think his daughter probably had a lot to do with it and putting it together. Who knows if they're even from him, to be honest. I don't. Even, like, when did he have time to come up with this? Was it... When he was in his coma? Like I, I, and I say this seriously, I don't know when did you have time to make this book, and do you not see the irony of like you're going through immense personal demons and struggles, and you're going to tell other people how to live? Like You should sort of take your own advice and clean up your own room first, metaphorically speaking, right? By the way, I just realized I have the student loan debt thing over my shoulder. When I needed that. Okay, there we go. So, um, but when this book was released, uh-oh, scandal, controversy, here's what happened. Staff at Jordan Peterson's publisher protest new book plans. Penguin Random House Canada's plans to publish a new work by the Professor Against Political Correctness has repeatedly prompted numerous complaints. The announcement of a new book from Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson, the self-styled Professor Against Political Correctness, has prompted dozens of complaints from staff at his publisher in Canada, according to a report. Vice's story on Tuesday said that the announcement of Peterson's forthcoming Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life, a follow-up to his global bestseller, 12 Rules for Life, prompted several staff at Penguin Random House to confront management. Peterson's views on the subject, including transgender rights, gender, and race, have been controversial. Last year, Cambridge University rescinded its offer of a visiting fellowship to Peterson following criticism from faculty and students. Also in 2019, 12 Rules for Life was temporarily pulled from, a, from sale in New Zealand, in a New Zealand book chain after the terrorist attack on a Christchurch mosque over perceived links between Peterson's fan base and Islamophobia. Um, at Penguin Random House Canada Town Hall meeting on Monday, one employee told Vice, people were crying about how Jordan Peterson has affected their lives. Uh, PRH Canada's Diversity and Inclusion Committee reportedly received at least 70 anonymous messages about Peterson's book from staff with only a couple in favor of the decision to publish. So, this is amazing to me because they're literally just saying, like, I don't like them, so don't publish the book. And by the way, yes, he has weighed in quite a bit on the issue of, of transgender rights. He very famously said, I'm, I'm not going to abide by Canada forcing us to use the gender pronouns that people prefer. There was some sort of rule, either from the Canadian government or from the school he was teaching at, that compels them to use the proper pronouns for transgender people. And he was so offended at the fact that they codified it that he was like, I need to stand up against this because you can't like, control language like this, basically was his argument. 
Now, funny enough, he did go on to say, when asked, would you call a trans person by the pronoun they want? He's like, yes, I would. So it's weird because he's saying, my objection is at the fact that they codified it, that the government codified it, or that the school codified it because that, he says that's against freedom of speech. And even though he thinks I have the right to not call people by their preferred pronoun, I wouldn't actually do it if a trans person came up to me and said, hey, call me X, I would call them X. That's what he says. So, but anyway, listen, as far as I could tell, other than the trans issue, when it comes to gender and race and, and Islam, I haven't seen him talk almost at all about any of that. Have you? And again, this is coming from me. I don't, politically, Jordan and I wouldn't see eye to eye. Probably at all. There's a lot of disagreements we have, I'm sure, because most of the stuff I've heard him say politically leans right. Um, but I haven't really heard him say anything about gender, anything about race. Um, he used to be big talking about the transgender rights issue for exactly what I described. Um, but people are saying, don't, they're protesting and saying, don't publish this book because of his opinions on those issues, which, by the way, I don't even think he touches on in the book because it's about 12 more rules for life. Again, there's a deep irony in him going through personal struggles and demons and then giving other people advice. I think that's really weird. So, but yeah, I mean, don't, I feel like this is people becoming the, the caricature of the censorious lefty. You know what I mean? Like, just, just let the book be published. And really, you're turning him into a victim, because then he would actually be a victim if you forced them not to publish his book. Now, you could say, ah, he could just go to another, you know, book publisher. But what if, you know, if you use the principle of universality here, then what you're saying is it's okay if every publisher does the same thing. It would be, I wouldn't have a problem with it morally or ethically if every publisher is like, no, I don't like them, or my workers don't like them, so let's not allow the book to be published. I don't like that, man. And if you can't see the problem with this as a matter of principle, you can't see two inches in front of your nose. Because the fact of the matter is, it started with Alex Jones, then, it, you, know, then you get Jordan Peterson, and it's just gonna, they're going to keep moving the goalposts, and then eventually it's me. Eventually it's the Chapo Trap House guys. Eventually it's some communist or Marxist who you really love. Because, again, everybody thinks their own opinions are, duh, common sense. But they're not. There are a lot of people who disagree with you vehemently and would censor you if given the opportunity. So I just say let's not open this door to this kind of censorship. Um, I don't agree with Jordan Peterson politically. I'm sure I never read 12 Rules for Life, and I'm not going to read this new one either. I'm sure, you know, some of it I might agree with, but a lot of it I probably won't agree with. That's not the point. The point is, I don't know why people feel this urge to be censorious, even for insane. Like, they still, you could still buy Mein Kampf, which was from the mind of the biggest genocidal maniac in history. You should be free to buy Mein Kampf and read it. So if we're going to allow Hitler to be published, why the hell would we not allow Jordan Peterson, who's nowhere near, anywhere near a guy like Hitler, why would you take that off? It's just, no, this is almost literally modern-day book burning. Let it be published, and then you could read it, and you could hate it or not hate it, and you could trash-talk him all day if you want. That's called freedom as well. So go ahead and trash-talk him all day, but I just think it's messed up. There's no reason to make him a victim, and there's no reason to be censorious. Let people publish stuff. There's going to be puff published stuff on the far left and the far right, it's always going to exist. Your petty tantrum to try to override that is just that. It's a petty tantrum. 
and it looks really silly. So anyway, um, I hope he gets better, and I will never get over how weird it is that this book is being published when he's going through probably struggles that are in the top 1% of terrible struggles for people. But anyway, I hope he gets better. All right, guys, we done, baby. I love y'all, and I'll talk to you soon. I'm out. Peace.